This week on FX Guide TV. Adobe CS6 in Seattle as John visits the After Effects team. This and more coming up next. Hello, I'm Angie Dale and welcome to FX Guide TV. Now we've all been looking forward to today's ep, CS6. Here at FX Guide, we were given exclusive access to the After Effects development team in Seattle for the CS6 release. So let's start with our resident After Effects expert, my very good friend, Mr. John Montgomery. John? Well, thanks for that, Angie. CS6 is certainly a major release and includes not only After Effects, but changes to Premiere Pro as well. Over the last several release cycles, Adobe has been really cognizant about the users who are looking for an alternative to Final Cut Studio or even the new Final Cut Pro 10. And those people include folks like myself, and I guess I'm serving as a guinea pig of sorts for effects guide. And on May 1st, I switched over to using Premiere Pro full-time. You can give a shot and see if it's something that we want to switch over to internally at effects guide. The segment I actually edited in that, and it's actually going quite well. I especially like some of the real-time stuff. Uh, dragging 5D footage right to it, having it work, as well as our 3D files. Some of the new stuff they added in that, in addition to really strong UI improvements, were some technology that previously existed in After Effects, and that's actually uh, the warp stabilizer, as well as technology developed off of that, which is the new rolling shutter repair. Now, leading that technology development effort at Adobe is the After Effects team's Dave Simons. Now, Dave has been with After Effects, well, from the very start. He's actually one of the co-founders of COSA. Uh, they actually started coding the software just over 20 years ago. So it's amazing he's been at the company that long through Aldous and now Adobe. And now he's in their advanced product development group, which is basically taking a look at technology, image processing research that they can turn into tools for artists in After Effects. Now, Dave really likes that image processing standpoint, but as I found out from him, his love still lies in the basic animation, motion graphics capabilities in After Effects. Well, the, the thing that drives me is animation, just bringing moving images to life on the screen, and image processing is just the, the, really the way to get there. So I, I, you know, I, I, I really like image processing, but for me it's the, the end result of, of seeing, I can code away for days, and then run something, and the end result is, is an animation or something that, that's, that's visual and, and it's alive. And that, that for me, is the, the motivating factor. Well, what's the difficulty, though, in getting from that basic research and turning it into something applicable and uh, easy to use for artists? I mean, I think After Effects does a really nice job of walking that line, having some really good image processing stuff, tool, and great creative tools, but it's very approachable at the same time. It's not incredibly an incredible technical burden for the audience or for the artist. Yeah, well, we, we've um, well with the warp stabilizer in particular, we, we've I've uh, I've actually I've changed a fair bit over the years. Where I used to really want f total control for the artist, so they could do absolutely everything and and not feel limited by the tool. Um, and you know, After Effects is a fairly complicated program, but you know, once you learn it, you can really you have control of your world. You can do things, and so that that's that's been great. But as we've just been adding stuff and adding stuff and adding stuff for 20 years, it's gotten really complicated. And so now I'm, I'm seeing much more of the benefits of making it just work. And you don't actually need to know how it works or what to do, just, just make it work. And so the warp stabilizer was really the first effort at like one click, just make it work. And, uh, and the response to that has been great. And so that, that's, that's... It works surprisingly well, actually. I was, I was amazed how, how it works. Work, well, it works on a variety of footage. Now, but it's important, to, it's also useful though from our standpoint to know a bit about the tool because 
you know, when I first saw the warp stabilizer, I thought, okay, is it using some kind of optical flow technology and you have this possibility of getting at, uh, artifacts when you're dealing with that, right? Mm -hmm. Versus it is actually kind of what you're saying it is. It's actually a warp stabilizer. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of things work best, I guess, with a warp stabilizer versus, say, other techniques? Well, any kind of footage that, that um, a traditional stabilizer stabilizes using either position, scale, rotate, or uh, sometimes uh, corner pinning you know, perspective. Uh, the warp stabilizer can do all that, but it's when you have some parallax in the shot, because let's say it was, it was handheld and moved side to side, and so something in the foreground is going to shake more when you move side to side than something in the background. And to stabilize that shot, you ideally would need to isolate that thing in the foreground, stabilize it separately from the background. But the, the way the warp stabilizer works, it's it, a very clever algorithm that came from our, our research group. Um, that will stabilize the thing in the foreground differently than the stuff in the background, but it doesn't separate them. It just it does a, a gentle mesh warp on the whole image, and it's it it just ends up being enough to make you look like it's stable, although it's not completely stable. It just it actually looks like it's stable. Well, I think it's really genius because again, the optical flow techniques you can get into problems with occlusion when stuff disappears, and then you get artifacts, but you don't have that kind right, of it artifacts. Yeah, like it doesn't the, care about that. It's yeah. it's. The original version of the paper required a full 3D solve for the points in order to, to, to figure out this gentle warp that did the right thing. Um, it, was the, it was the next year's paper that allowed what was called the, a subspace warp, where um, instead of calculating the camera, it creates this, just a matrix really, that, that acts like a camera matrix, but it's not, it's, it's looser than a camera matrix. And so there are more scenes that can survive, you know, there may be a scene that we don't have enough parallax to solve a camera, but there is enough parallax to create this subspace. And so the original name of the paper was Subspace Warp, and we considered calling it Subspace Warp, but ended up with, with the Warp Stabilizer. But the, the um, uh, you asked about, uh, you know, the, what it takes to go from the research mm -hmm. into the product, and, you know, so that was probably, I guess that was a, two years of research, um, but then it was, I think almost a year and a half of us just of, of, of our advanced product development team trying to wrap ourselves around that and, and you know and turn it into a plugin that would work inside After Effects that would deal with all of the edge cases and in fact we had to work with the researchers that work really well on certain shots and it just fell apart completely on other ones and so we work with them during that next year to come up with fallback situations so you know when, when people say it works well it would be interesting, to, we don't have the, the instrumentation to figure this out, but it has various fallbacks that, that go from the full warp stabilization mm -hmm. down to the things when it can't do it. And it, it'll do that, you know, you might have a shot that's 20 seconds long, it might be using warp stabilization for the first 12 seconds and then fall back to perspective, fall back to position only, and jump up again. And it does that all without any information to the user, and hopefully it's just working. So it uh, be interesting to find out how often it's doing it, sort of all engines are, are running for, for that. Well, that's obviously something that came out in the, in the last release. Uh, but this release, there's some new kind of core image processing so that you've been working on. That's the camera tracker. Can you talk a little bit about the development process on that? Sure. So the camera tracker, um, well, we generally don't like to compete with our plugin developers. Um, but and there are clearly lots of camera trackers out there. The foundry still loves you. And the, and the, yeah, and, and they they had a nice one. In fact, although we started this before they came out with that, but okay. but um, we really wanted something not for people who are doing camera tracking. We wanted people something for people who weren't doing camera tracking because too complicated. They don't want to learn it. 
And um, even the Foundry's one still requires some, some knowledge to work with. We, we wanted a one-click camera tracker. I think in the end we ended up with two clicks, but <laughs> pretty close. Um, and uh, we had the 2D tracking technology from Warp Stabilizer, and we had this asynchronous processing of, of allowing that to work in the background. So we started with that and worked with our research group, um, Hylin Jin in, in the research group, who, who uh, came up with the solver. He had been looking at, at uh, just multiple view um, camera solves just from photos. And so we, he adapted that to, to work on video. And it, but it came, it came from photos, um, which has a lot less information. So, so you know, the, the video, we have, we have a lot more because um, we have every frame. And uh, so, but again, it was that, it, that took about a year to go from a working research prototype doing, that could do the camera solves to coming up with something that had a UI and After Effects and uh, like, the, like the target thing that lets you pick where you want to attach something. But that's actually really interesting from a user standpoint because you don't have to, re you know, you have this clockwise thumb thing or old trackers where you have to figure out the ground plane and where mm -hmm. everything is. And again, it's not just using that image processing technology, but putting it in a way that's easy to use, right? Right, well, this, like the ground plane, for example, we, we skipped that, that whole thing right. because it's, if, you, if you're just doing motion graphics and you want to drop in a title and you want it to you know, float over the, over the table or stuck to this wall or be on the floor, whatever, um, you don't necessarily need a ground plane. You're not, you're not doing real modeling. Um, you just want to drop the thing in, click, and be done. And so we didn't, at one point, we thought we were going to need a ground plane because to get everything, get your coordinate system oriented. But a lot of people don't care about their coordinate system, right? They don't want to think about that. So we just skipped that whole thing and went straight to, oh, yeah, just put an object there in the scene and, and be done with it. Can you give us a bit of clue into what works really well, the type of camera that works really well, and then maybe one where you're really going to have problems with getting a decent track sure. from. With the camera tracker in, in particular. Um, so a shot that works really well will usually have a high shutter speed because motion blur makes the 2D tracker. Um, it still works, but it won't work as well. You won't have as many track points. And if the camera suddenly moves, that can, actually, that can cause a problem because all your track points can, can disappear if there's motion blur. But if it's shot with a high speed shutter, a sudden movement should, should be fine. Um, but any, any scene with parallax, Will 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 give you depth, so the camera has to move side to side or, or up and up and down. Um, though a lot of people will throw a, a shot at it that's not really appropriate for a 3D tracker. Just it was a tripod pan, a nodal pan, or something. Nodal like pan, that, right? And um, so it will automatically detect that, and just you'll end up with a effectively a 2D track. But if all you're trying to do is drop a thing, a piece of you know graphic or text or something in the, in the shot that's supposed to look like it's there. It will still look like it's there. You just, you know, you, if you uh, if you wanted to have depth of field, you might have to set the depth manually. But but uh, it will, you know, because it's a two D track, so you don't need parallax. So in fact, you didn't even need a three D camera. But it will create a three D camera that just like sits on a tripod and and pans around. So so I wouldn't say you know it's it's not designed for that kind of shot, but it will work for it. And and. How hard has the process been to keep it up to date? I mean, did you just do one big, massive rewrite of the software at some point, or are you kind of piecemealing as you go on, re release to release? Uh, we've never done a, a full-on rewrite, although for an engineer that's always tempting, but usually results in, as a fia into a fiasco. Um, but so we, we reserve a certain percentage every cycle for what we call eng tasks, and, and that's um, usually do it uh, at the beginning of each cycle just because Sometimes you can dig up some dirt, some some dust and things that you know, it takes a while to settle. 
Um, but yeah, we've kept the code fresh that way by rewriting bits and pieces of it. You know, eventually there'll be nothing left of, of the original, but there are still a few things I can think of right now that go all the way back to, to 1.0. Um, but Apple, for the most part, has been the one keeping us on our toes there because we have to rewrite this part or that part for whatever thing Apple has decided you know, is mandatory to run on the next version of OS X. Or you know, OS X itself was, right. was, a, was a big change from OS 9. And, does something like the new 3D render require a big bunch of changes internally in the software? Well, that, the, th the new ray tracer was a, was a, was a big effort, um, although surprisingly not in the center, the heart of the software, because we have what we call the Artisan API. That the, um, we have, uh, that's the way, back when we first did 3D, we had what we called the basic 3D render, which did non-intersecting planes in space. And then we had what we called the advanced 3D render, which is now renamed the classic 3D renderer. And those were two different artisans, and the ray tracer is itself an artisan. So we already had this plugin API, but that kind of makes it sound like, oh, it's just this little thing on the side. It really, there's still major changes required in, in the app itself for things like all of the new parameters, like you know, the bendability of layers, all, all those things. The artisan doesn't have control of those, so that had to be put into the, into the core. Another longtime member of the After Effects development team is Chris Prosser, who first joined over 12 years ago. Today he serves as engineering manager for the team, basically overseeing development of the software, making sure it ships on time and things like that. He has a really solid core understanding of the under, under the hood aspects of the application. So it's great to catch up with him about several new features in the software, things like a new 3D ray tracer, as well as a global performance cache, which really speeds up interactivity and has really intelligent caching to make things go faster for users. So the, the uh, focus, the global performance cache consists of a couple different things. Uh, one of them which is a sub-technology we call hash cache internally. And it's the concept that for every piece of video, there's an associated, I believe it's a 128-bit number, that represents the contents used to generate that piece of video. And we maintain these caches throughout the system um, based on the, the parameters, the footage, all those sorts of things. And then we cache it. We both cache it persistently on the disk. Um, and since it's stateless, so there's no idea of how we got here, there's no time involved, Anytime another piece of um, data is encountered, so you, you reuse an effect that's on the same comp, um, we'll be able to automatically reuse that piece of the cache. Well, that's very different, though. What you're doing is very different from, say, uh, the RAM preview or something like that, where you're effectively caching the entire render. You're actually looking at layer-based, right, with this. Versus. We are. We actually go a little bit deeper than even just layer based. So we have caches at quite a number of points throughout our rendering pipe. Some right after footage. So mm -hmm. if you're working with footage that's coming off a slow network, we'll now be able to cache that locally, especially if you have disk caching turned on. Um, and then we have things called ephemeral caches, which oftentimes if you're scrubbing an effect, we'll cache everything right up to that parameter that you're scrubbing essentially. Um, and then at the layer level and, and at other interesting points in the compositing tree. I think what's also interesting about it, though, is just changing a parameter on a layer doesn't necessarily mean you lose it forever. I mean, if you have a layer that's cached and then you go in and say, do some kind of different grade or add some effect and then go back and undo it, you can actually get that cache back as, as long as it's still persistent. Exactly, right? exactly. As long as it's still there, it's this, if it's the same data, you know, if you get back there by, there, I, by either by undoing or just moving the parameter back to its original value, it just comes back. I think a really interesting example of that is you have a layer that's cached, you duplicate that layer, mm -hmm. 
okay, and that layer is also cached. But if you go back and change the original layer, of course, the cache is gone, but still present on the secondary layer. So it's actually, you save a lot of time by not pre-processing that stuff. Um, it must have taken a tremendous amount of change under the hood to keep track of that. It did, it did. So we actually, one engineer started off early back in, at the beginning of the 5.5 cycle and started doing the groundwork for it. Um, and the older caching system, which had some of the same properties, but was getting increasingly difficult to maintain, um, is all gone now. So it's all been replaced with this. But any piece of code that generates pixels needs to have this mapping added to it of, well, what does it represent? How is it represented? And what kind of disk storage is best? I mean, solid, solid state, RAIDs, fiber, Thunderbolt, what? Um, solid state, hands down. So um, the hash cache, while they're bigger files, that random access is important. And um, with the prices of SSDs these days, I'd really recommend just buying one, slamming it into your machine over a higher speed port, something like eSATA uh, or SATA if you're putting it internally, can just drastically accelerate the performance. Even on my team within um, people writing code, so not using After Effects, we've standardized that every developer now actually has uh, an SSD for development, just because it's such a dramatic improvement um, over anything, any other technology. And even a cache layer seems to be in playback faster than it would if you were just reading an image file or something or sequence off the frame source. It's got to be doing something different under the hood to make that faster too as well. It is. So we've actually threaded some of the, the cache stuff and it's also, they're very simple files. So a lot of file formats will have parsing, a lot of metadata overhead. These things are, are pretty much are in memory representation on disk. So we just read them into memory, nothing needs to be touched and they're good to go. Which does mean they're big though. <laughs> it does mean they're big, yes. And it was something we struggled with of, do we want to compress these? Because once you start compressing them, then you've got um, sort of the nightmare of codec trade-offs. Do you want it small? Do you want it fast? Or do you want it good? And uh, in the end, we decided that visual um, sort of clarity was the most important thing. We didn't want to put an overhead or even a lossless codec on it. Okay, you mentioned the other big change architecturally, and that's the 3D renderer. I mean, obviously, you have that plug in, that gets plugged in, but did have some serious impacts on workflow because of the interactivity. Can you walk us through that a bit? Sure, so um, you know, historically After Effects has had, back when we started, I think our first 3D render in After Effects 6, um, as opposed to CS6, which is, which is coming out now, um, we went down this path where we had an OpenGL preview renderer that was getting increasingly complicated as we tried to move more and more of the 2D pixel processing operations into it. So it's sort of a hybrid uh, 2D GPU path and then 2.5D GPU renderer. Um, and then we had our CPU renderer, which is always used for final renders. Um, when we were heading into really getting back into the 3D um, work, we realized that that wasn't serving us so well anymore. And we looked at other 3D applications, and a lot of them drew a much clearer line between when you're previewing versus when you're actually doing your final render. And, um, and talking to people felt that there's a lot more value in that. So uh, for CS6, we created really our strong, high-quality final renderer, which is a ray tracer, does motion blur, does depth of field. Um, and if you've got a qualified GPU, it's incredibly screaming fast. But one of the problems has always been with ray tracers is that they can get a little pokey. And we didn't want to slow people down when they're trying to make creative decisions, so we created an entirely new um, 3D preview renderer, which we call Fast Draft, that the idea of Fast Draft is speed, 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 and it's mostly what you're expecting to see, but we did make trade-offs. If we hit a, a point where 
um, visual fidelity would cause you to lose pretty much real-time performance, then we would stick with the real-time performance. Can you explain the difference between what you're doing with the 3D rendering technology versus something that's, say, using shaders in OpenGL, because they are very different things? Right, so... Um, and why it's not so easy to just implement in every graphics card. Exactly, exactly. Um, so under the hood, we're actually using CUDA, and um, CUDA is a radically different compute architecture from uh, GLSL, which is the shader language um, running on top of OpenGL. And the biggest difference is it's just a generalized compute language with a, a restriction on the types of things it can express. And so the entire uh, ray tracer is actually expressed in CUDA. So the, the closest modern analog to it is OpenCL, um, whereas GLSL and OpenGL is actually an entire 3D environment that has a lot of assumptions about uh, what your scene looks like, what your model looks like, um, and how shaders fit into there. So this is really, we're using the CUDA card just as a compute device. It has no idea of really what the geometry is or anything like that. Right, and this, the reason is, is just, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's just got tons of parallel processors in it, mm -hmm. unlike the CPU. I mean, you're basically using it like it's kind of like a ton of CPUs in a way, isn't it? It or is. It is. So, um, you know, the, the CUDA cards range anywhere from hundreds to thousands, to thousands of cores. So if you think about it, you know, your desktop normally has four, eight, you know, some of them with hyper-threading, you'll be getting up to 24 cores, independently addressable cores. It's a very different problem space when you're looking at 1,500 cores. Um, and with 1,500 cores, well, you can make a lot of very simple decisions fast, but you do have to structure your programming really differently. Um, to one now where the GPUs, because you can just keep adding cores to them, while they are also focused on improving performance per watt, um, the underlying programming model supported by them is so highly um, parallelizable that it's easy to just stuff more, more cores on. One thing I'm interested in is kind of the collaboration that goes between the integration between see, something like Premiere and After Effects where you have Dynamic Link. Um, my problem with Dynamic Link is that it doesn't really work as well as the promise of, mm -hmm. of how it should. And, and it hasn't really changed that much since it was first introduced. I mean, is it a difficult process? I mean, what are the, what are the things kind of holding up that integration? Um, so yes, it is a difficult process in that um, we're two very different teams with very different customer bases asking uh, to do a lot for them. And so, you know, in Dynamic Link in particular, we really want to work more closely with Premiere and support people using both products together. Um, but Premiere's been doing a lot of work on their core feature set regarding just around editing um, footage that's already in the product. And so if you're looking at CS6, they've done a lot of work on overhauling their UI, making things more responsive, simplifying. Um, and the, the battle we face in terms of prioritization is, well, if you can't edit that great just with existing footage, where should Dynamic Link be prioritized and improving the workflow there? And so we spent, did spend actually a lot of time improving Dynamic Link under the hood uh, in CS6, which will help in improved stability um, when people are using it. But um, it's still a, a complex problem to be having these two products talking to each other and definitely warrants more work. I mean, from an artist perspective externally, I mean, it looks like something like, say, a recent example, the, the three-way color corrector from Premiere. I mean, shouldn't it just be the same thing in the two products? It seems like it's easy. Mm -hmm. It should be easy. It should be easy. Um, and it actually, if we do support the three-way right. color corrector, it comes in, but the UI doesn't come along. Um, and if you look historically, um, we've been moving the products more and more technologically to a similar foundation. And 
that was one of the products that projects that was started prior to that work. So they've had a three-way color corrector for a long time now. Uh, and so back to my earlier discussion about priorities, all these things sort of fit into our long-term roadmap, and we always endeavor to bring them together. But uh, the thing that helps change our priorities is hearing from our customers. And when we talk to customers, really helping us understand you know, specifically how does the, the differences in color correction workflows between After Effects Premiere hurt you and hurt your productivity over something like um, improving hash cash. So. Another thing I've been kind of curious about over the years is like you can, in Premiere you hit play and it plays in, in real time and After Effects has never really had that per se. I mean it seems like there's efforts being made to really mm -hmm. improve performance, hash cash being a good example of that. Mm -hmm. but. I mean, why isn't that, ha isn't that possible in After Effects? Um, so we tend to think about After Effects and Premiere serving slightly different problems. And so Premiere has always been about somewhat longer form editing. You're, it's editing. So you're going to start editorial generally with a longer piece, multiple pieces of media. Getting the timing down is very important. Um, but it's really throughput oriented. Now with After Effects, it's not that timing isn't important, but for us, we're always thinking about a single frame takes a long time to render. So we start with the background that, okay, we can't assume a frame is going to render in 30 milliseconds or 15 milliseconds. Um, no matter how many frames we have running in parallel, it's still not going to be great. And so things like hash cache really help with when you're working with a complicated frame to be working on, um, you know, you're changing one layer of it, but we're keeping the caches behind it. And honestly, we've done a lot of that work at the expense of just the spacebar play. So just doing spacebar play requires a tremendous amount of investment um, in a very throughput-oriented pipe. And our goal first was to make sure that you know, individual frames get faster to render. And then we can start thinking about how do we make many of them render faster over time. I think one thing where After Effects really has kind of set a standard and I'm a huge fan of is the color management and the scene referred color manage workflow, which is big. I mean, there's no, no one else really, do, well, I shouldn't say no one else, but not many people mm -hmm. really doing that. Is this something that we'll hopefully see in the other Adobe products? So I think we've set a, a good precedent with our acquisition of SpeedGrade that mm -hmm. we're taking color seriously. We really want to bring this through to our other products. Um, definitely we talk at length about exactly which path to go down. I'm not free to say exactly which path we will be going down. Um, but linear and scene-referred workflows in, within the industry. So linear floating-point workflows are a very interesting area. I mean, it clarifies a lot of assumptions about it, about the kind of work you're doing and, and how things represent reality better. And so clearly it's an interesting area that we've pioneered within After Effects and used some of the ICC technology to make um, very simple to do, but still an active area of discussion. Something else that we didn't talk about that's under global performance cache is we took the final portion of um, getting things to the screen in After Effects and move that entirely onto the GPU, which means things like doing color lookups and transforms um, can actually all take place on the card, and the card has great hardware for doing these things. Um, Premiere is in the same place where their Mercury engine has moved a lot of this onto the card. And even with, when you're not using their Mercury engine, the final bits of their pipe are actually done on the card too. So at least for the display transforms, it's not particularly expensive anymore. But on the footage side, it's always an extra pass over the pixels. It's a lot. Um, so there is some cost associated with it. It seems like the hash cache you could apply just, again, you know, the hash cache you could do it there, right? And exactly. suppose get, 
get the scene referred, get it to where you are, and then you don't have to worry about that anymore. Exactly, exactly. Right. Putting caches at critical points in there, and especially if the persistence caches, helps bury a lot of this stuff. But this gets back to my earlier comment of high throughput versus complex frames. If you're doing sort of just a high throughput, I want to bring in something, transcode it, and spit it back out, we can put all the caches we want in there. It's not going to really help because it's everything's just being seen once. Um, so. Well, I got to say, I really appreciate the After Effects development team inviting me up there for conversations with them. I mean, I've been a fan and a big user for years. I used the first version when it was COSA After Effects, and I've used it since then. In fact, uh, alongside my flame, you know, a $900,000 flame at the time, uh, I actually demanded having a Macintosh with After Effects running on it because there are so many great things that it did that Flame couldn't. And between those two things, uh, it was a great combination. I've continued using After Effects over the years. So it's great to visit uh, Seattle where they actually developed the software after all this time. We've got some more coverage of After Effects over at FXPHD with some behind the scenes look with the developer of the camera tracker as well as some other gems. So head on over to FXPHD to check that out. But for now, i got to head out of here, hop a plane for Stuttgart, Germany for our coverage of FMX 2012. Ian's heading up from the Sydney office uh, to cover that, so check out FX Guide for that. But for now, let's on back to Sydney and Angie. Thanks, guys. And don't forget, if you like this podcast, you may also like our other podcasts, such as the FX Podcast, The VFX Show, and our digital cinematography podcast, The RC. Well, that's it for this week, and until next time, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.